Here at Country Roads Magazine, for 40 years with curiosity as our guide, we've been wandering the back roads of Louisiana and Mississippi, discovering and sharing Southern culture's most compelling stories. Our latest project is Detours, a podcast where we'll dive deeper into some favorite stories from our recent issues and crack open the door to our editorial meeting, letting you, dear listener, in on our process of choosing and refining the stories that land in country roads. Think of it as a friendly audio companion to your monthly magazine, a chance to really hear the voices of the artists, chefs, farmers, musicians, designers, and other culture bearers who make our vibrantly unique region like no other. It's a chance to listen closer and discover more. And maybe laugh a little too. I'm James Fox-Smith, publisher. And I'm Jordan Lahey-Fontenot, managing editor. And I'm Alexandra Kennan, arts and entertainment editor. And this is Detours, a new podcast from your friends at Country Roads Magazine. We obviously love covering cuisine at Country Roads, and particularly the kinds of foodway stories that help enrich dishes and cuisines by expanding on their background and their history. In our July cuisine issue for this year, we included a different kind of take on foodways with a story that follows one of Louisiana's most famous dishes back to the place where it was first born as a very different dish than the one that we recognize in the American South today. So here we are with New Orleans writer, podcaster, content creator, and wearer of multiple hats, Jody Ray, who came to us in the post haze of an incredible adventure where he gathered all kinds of story inspiration uh, from a place very far away. Jody, why don't you tell us a bit about your recent journeys across Africa? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Um, so this trip to, uh, well, it started in West Africa, but it was um, a part of a larger project that I, uh, where I create content around a project called Exit Strategy. Um, that project began uh, during the pandemic as an effort to become a bit more familiarized with the planet through its culture, cuisine, and its political conflict. Um, it's the three C's that I kind of, uh, that I call. Um, but yeah, these are the uh, sorts of, of pillars, I think, um, that are the best ones to choose to really understand a country, especially when you're not from the, uh, you know, that place. Uh, but I chose West Africa. I started in Togo, um, particularly because I was interested in its authoritarian nature. This is the oldest single-family dynasty on the, on the African continent. It was the first to succumb um, uh, through a, a coup d'etat through assassination after uh, colonial independence. So there's a lot of interesting political history in the country. But certainly as I was um, traveling through that, that wonderful country and, um, uh, and, and exploring all these things, obviously, you know, you have to eat. And so I was um, served gumbo. And so gumbo uh, and the story around the origins of gumbo really became, um, you know, a part of that coverage. Um, so, yeah, traveling through Togo was incredibly difficult. I was um, often stopped. I was harassed by security police, detained uh, to have my footage surveyed. Um, it's not a really safe place to go for someone who wants to film or photograph, but it's even worse for um, the locals. I have the privilege of being an outsider, but also white and American. And that comes with, I think, some power when you're traveling abroad. And, you know, I recognize... I recognized that as I was as I was traveling through, but um, I was uh, I was there to cover all of this stuff. You know, I was fascinated with voodoo, which also has its origins there. Um, 
uh, Jody, I, I wanted to ask, so when did this trip take place? And also, um, like for those who haven't traveled to Africa, like describe the trip. You leave the US, you fly to somewhere in Europe and then and then transit down towards, like where did you transit through? Where did you land? Yeah, so it started in April uh, of last year and I traveled, I was um, traveling through Africa for uh, about five and a half months. Um, when I first went to, to, when I first traveled to Togo, let's see, I'm trying to remember this correctly. The airport was in uh, Lome. It's a coastal city. I transited through uh, London Heathrow. Okay. Okay. And then after Togo, you moved on through, which countries did you visit? Yeah. So after Togo, um, well, I had to bribe my way out of Togo. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's so, a story for another day, it sounds right. like. Right. So I had to bribe my way through the, the, the border. You know, this is a quasi-authoritarian state, so it's, it's difficult when, when you're dealing with these sort of things. Um, Benin is neighboring. Uh, they're kind of like... Uh, sister countries, I guess in the sort of way like New Zealand or Australia would be, um, but that's how they're, that's how they're viewed. Um, but Benin, um, much more open, uh, much more democratic, much more friendly. Um, and in fact, when I got on the other side of the border, the, the Benin's border, uh, border control rolled their eyes that I even had to, um, bribe my way out, but it was oh, a Lord. sticky situation. But yeah, from Togo, uh, I went to Benin and that's really in Benin was where I was able to get most of the gumbo coverage because I was just, it was just easier to film there. You're not being stopped by, uh, by the police constantly, um, and asked what you're up to. Um, it also has the largest market in, uh, in West Africa. It's uh, called Kotano market. And, um, there I was able to gather all of the ingredients um, and I uh, was fortunate enough to be invited by a local family to create gumbo uh, in their home. Um, and then I guess, yeah, and we, we, I'm happy to go through that. But from Benin, I traveled to Ethiopia, from Ethiopia to Kenya, Kenya to Madagascar, and then back to Kenya and then back home. Wow, so that's, that's, a, that's a, an extraordinary trip that must have been. Um, I, I assume that, um, again, for those that haven't had the opportunity, as you travel around um, through the countries of Africa, I assume the food culture varies as widely as it does from the U.S. to England to, you know, to, you know, Sweden to Spain. Right? Is it is it as distinct from place to place within those countries as it is in, say, Western Europe? Yeah. So uh, in West Africa, everybody um, claimed that they had the best fufu. Fufu is this like cornmeal cassava mash that kind of looks like hardened mashed potatoes and that's what's used uh, as the carbohydrate to eat gumbo with you use it you take it in the fingers and you um and you draw the ingredients from the bowl whereas like in louisiana we use rice but nevertheless everybody has their own version of gumbo everybody has uh, claims that their fufu is the best um there's also now with um uh, significant chinese foreign direct investment in uh, on the entire continent, you can find a variety of different Chinese dishes that are being influenced and mixed around um, with African cuisine. So yeah, there's there's a lot going on. Wow, that's really interesting to hear, particularly about the different influences like the Chinese that are impacting African cuisine at this point in time. Um, I know we've seen so much globalization impact Creole and Cajun cuisine here, and that's just neat to hear that that's a universal experience. Yeah, I mean, the Chinese state, many in many ways, you know, they're the ones building the roads, they're the ones building the bridges. And of course, that means they're usually there for a very long time. And that means that the food winds up uh, coming along with them. 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's how we got Yakamane here in New Orleans. Lord right. knows we're not mad about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's neat to hear that while your experience making the gumbo and going through the market was in Benin, that you really did encounter gumbo as a dish throughout Africa. Um, that's still a dish that's being made as a comfort food there to this day. And that's something that, you know, when I was giving food tours and working on my book, I encountered this history of, of gumbo being a West African word. And it kind of surprised me how few people really realize that. Even people who grew up with gumbo as a dish here in Louisiana, I don't think everyone really is aware of those direct West African connections. Um, of course, that word gumbo comes from the West African word keen gumbo, which it's my understanding exists in several Bantu languages in West Africa. Um, and it's even said that enslaved women in many cases brought the okra seeds with them. Um, there, there's one legend that says that they sewed them into their hair to bring them on slave ships with them. And it's said that okra, that produce itself, traveled with the slave trade from West Africa to the French West Indies and then eventually to Louisiana. Um, but it's so striking to me how even though this is such a beloved dish here that we all know and we all grew up with, um, I don't think folks realize, I know I didn't, how directly it still is connected to West Africa and to those West African roots. So we were really, you know, intrigued by your method in general of going to Africa to gather content or, or going on any, you know, international trip to gather content and then coming home and pitching that. We were we were really, you know, kind of excited and intrigued by that, but especially that you dive into the, these gumbo origins in a really, like, direct way. So I think we'd love to hear a little bit more um about what that experience was like, you know, and how you made that connection with the family, how you came to go through the market. Uh, and I know you say this in the story that you wrote for us, but I think we'd just love to hear it sort of more from, from your own perspective. Yeah, sure. No, I, I appreciate it. I would love to uh, see a poll if one has ever been done, like by a university here in Louisiana that pulls um, Louisianians' knowledge on the origins of, of this stuff, because I certainly knew before well, before I, I uh, even traveled to West Africa, um, I just had a cursory idea of this. Um, I just had uh, a, a very vague notion that, you know, this is where the origins of gumbo was. I never thought that I would be in a local's kitchen um, making it with um, their family and then eating it. That was an, um, an absolute pleasure. That um, came about in Kotanu Market. I was actually, um, once I crossed the border uh, out of Togo, um, we uh, hired a guide to bring us through um, the market and uh, just gather all the ingredients. And um, what I was planning to do, I was going to try to make it myself in my in my hotel room um, using using their kitchen. Uh, but he was he suggested, hey, you know, <laughs> this is our food. Like my mom makes this all the time. You want to <laughs> just come, go to my house. Uh, you just buy everything. No, and yeah, I'm you like, were like, that Done. is so much of a better idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and relatable to Louisiana, too. I mean, you mentioned that to someone's mama down here, and, and they're not going to let you get by without bringing you home to show you what it's like. That's right. I love that aspect of it. It's like these two parallel, like, cultures and universes that are happening at the same time. Someone's mom is making a guest gumbo. Like, I think it's uh, it's, it's such a beautiful anecdote. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh... His mother's name is Augustine, so she happily invited us, and she was like, "Hey, you pay for everything, get all the ingredients. Brit will bring this back." And uh, and she, you know, I, I was included in the process too. I had to peel shrimp, I had to uh, cut the okra. Um, it wasn't like uh, I just handed it over and said, "Please make gumbo." Um, I was I was involved, and that's part of. Uh, I have a, a ton of footage, a ton of video footage that I will be uh, posting on the Exit Strategy TV YouTube channel, so people can um, see that. 
and we will include a link to that in the show notes for the episode. So awesome. if you want to see pictures from this, if you want to see some of that video, then absolutely you'll find it in the show notes for the episode. Yeah, but I'd love to loop back real quick because I got a little excited about you sharing your experience itself. But just in terms of what we were talking about with Louisianans, not necessarily having a really, you know, solid understanding that gumbo is still a dish being currently made uh, in West Africa, something that, that's actively made in households. What was your experience on the other side of that? Uh, did, did it seem like most of the African people you encountered had a good grasp of, oh, yeah, this is a dish that is now popular in Louisiana, but it came from here first? Or, or what was your impression yeah, of that? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, um, I asked Augustine this and her son, Jean-Paul, and they had, I think, uh, a loose idea that it had uh, it made its way to the States, but I don't think there's a true connection um, I don't know 100%, but I got the feeling that I, I, I didn't get that um, people were really knew uh, that Louisiana was, you know, a, a French colony at one point, and we had this French influence of things. There is a disconnect um, uh, over the Atlantic. So, uh, yeah, hopefully this coverage and, and this reporting kind of bridges that gap a little bit. I, um, I, I, I hope so, anyway. Oh, I think so. We're definitely excited to include it for our readers. I, I know we found it found it interesting. Yeah. So, Jody, something that I was curious about as I read this and going back to Jordan's question earlier was obviously that Louisiana is a place where the culture of gathering to cook a meal is literally part of celebration. I wondered if you found in Benin if it was the same, if if it served the same purpose where where entertaining, gathering, literally the food preparation took center stage the way it does in, say, you know, in, uh, you know, an Acadiana household or a New Orleans household, that's absolutely the case. You don't just bring people over for dinner. Half the time, you're, if you arrive as a guest, you're part of the preparation process. Did you find that was that, that proxy there as well? Yeah, I mean that's certainly what happened to me when I was pre when I was helping uh, prepare uh, everything. Um, also, you know, I was in a small little neighborhood. Uh, there were you know neighbors came around. I think also because they wanted to see the white westerner who had turned up. Uh, <laughs> they wanted to see what what was going on. Um, but yeah, every, you know the gumbo was also made outside. So we're preparing this over fire um, in pots and pans using um, um, real mortar and pestle to. Uh, um, grind down all these spices and ingredients that we needed inside the house. Everyone is listening to music. Um, they were playing video games. Wow. Uh, people were drinking rum. So inside is where the entertainment happens. Outside is where all the uh, where the kitchen is, basically. Is it is it separated between men and women? Did you find is it a, a, a women? Uh, is there a separation of the men in the in the kitchen as well? I mean, that's just curious again from the point, you know, there are many places where there is that separation and right. places where there's not. I think um, maybe in other parts of Africa, not here so much. I mean, I know Jean-Paul said he would have ever, rather just hold the camera than to help us uh, prepare some of the food items. Um, but the women were um, certainly giggly when they saw myself and my friend Ben um, uh, getting our hands dirty with uh, with uh, preparation. Super um, interesting. I don't think the I don't think the lines are so stark though. It's not as stark as like maybe in Arab countries where you'll see um, uh, a true separation between uh, male and female uh, around uh, dinner, around food preparation. Sure, yeah. sure. 
Now, Jody, the uh, the dish itself, um, for people who may have not read the story, uh, I'd love to have you expand a little bit on the ingredients. Um, I know, you know, there's definitely this cultural connection between these two, you know, this dish, which they call um, okra stew there, gumbo, and then this the gumbo that we know here. Um, some very different ingredients go into these things, though. They're almost, I mean, did you feel like they were as far as taste and uh the way it looks like in indis- would were they like indistinguishable from each other if you didn't know or uh what was what was the thing that struck you the most about these two the differences between these yeah two what dishes? are the similarities what are the differences yeah so i think they're they're both similar and we're talking uh, west african okra stew and louisiana gumbo they're similar in logic as in it's a it's uh you're you're dealing with a bowl full of different proteins kind of um mixed around with uh, vegetables and spice. So it, it has the same logic. In terms of the taste, they're completely different. Um, the West African version includes more okra than you really know what to do with. You're really dealing with um, an okra like stoop, uh, soup or, or stew, and it becomes very thick. Um, the reason I think that it, it, it is that way is because they don't use a roux the way that um, uh, the Louisiana gumbo has been influenced by the French we use a roux um, here, the, the, everything that um, all, all the ingredients are, are bound together with this uh, hefty portions of okra. And it's, it becomes like this green gelatinous slime. And I, and I don't mean to disparage the dish at all. It's delicious. It's just, um, it's certainly, it's certainly something different for the Western palate. Um, and th- that, that, um, that, that's the principle of okra, isn't it? Is it serves as a thickening agent yeah, in the absence right. of, like a flour-based or a wheat-based root. I was wondering, actually, is there no um, tradition in the local food culture of 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 wheat flour? Um, I notice you you know you reference cassava and other other starches, but really, the, the the wheat doesn't have a place. Is that correct? It didn't seem like it, and certainly not for this dish. I mean, maybe it's used uh, elsewhere in other forms, but but not here. You don't really see them cooking down. Um, uh, butter and and uh, uh, or any of like the sort of starch stuff uh, that yeah. we would use here. We it's um, all all okra, um, more okra than than you think would be necessary. I mean, an incredible amount of okra because it cooks down, and then you have to add more, and it just becomes this huge um, binding, slimy, oozy sort of thing that I thought was cool. But um, I recognize it's it's probably you know. Um, it, you know, Western palates are not going to be used to it, but uh, it bound together all the ingredients that you have in Louisiana gumbo, shrimp, crab, fish, um, all the other uh, vegetables like, um, you know, onion and, and garlic and uh, all this stuff. Now, interesting enough, they did add one ingredient that I, was my absolute favorite that I wish we could incorporate here somehow, but they have these huge blocks of cheese. And mm. I was um, curious about that. Yeah, it was yeah. so it was so delicious. It became like um like just these hardened cubes that they fried first and then they added into the gumbo right at the end. And uh that was certainly my favorite part um you know picking it up uh you know with the fufu and uh and and eating these big huge blocks of cheese that had like soaked up all of the um, spices and stuff. It I find really, there's really very good. little that's not improved by cheese. So I liked that development as well. <laughs> Yep. I know. Yep. And, you know, it's like something I would be skeptical about, but I am pleased to learn that cheese can go right. in a gumbo. 
That makes me, yeah, that brings me joy. Because we can be such gatekeepers about it in Louisiana, I find. You know, I mean, it's like yeah. whatever version our mama or our grandma made is the pinnacle of gumbo to each of us. And, <laughs> and we tend to, you know, look at it like that. But that's why I think the story is so fascinating is it really opened our eyes to seeing, oh, no, you know, Louisiana does not have the monopoly on this dish. And it can be something very different than we even imagine it to be. Yeah, no, it was great. The cheese was awesome. I mean, it was so such a hardened cheese that it didn't even melt in the heat. So, like, it stayed together, which was yeah. Which you was said really great. in the dish, I really that, appreciate in that. the story that it uh, reminded you of halloumi, the Greek style cheese, right? That, it's that's yeah, that's yeah. kind of what it was like. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I, there was another ingredient yeah. that I was super curious about, and that was the cow skin or the cow hide. Perhaps was it like a dried right? Um, a, a dried skin used as a seasoning agent or how, what, what role did that play? Yeah. So when we were going through the market, um, there was a woman with a, uh, just a, just huge bowls, huge metal bowls full of this, um, what looked like, I guess, like this, like rubbery hide. I had, I had no idea what it was at first. It kind of looked like it could have been pink skin. Um, but I just wasn't sure. I'd never seen it before. Uh, but yeah, uh, we were told that's a staple ingredient. Um, she cut it off into strips, uh, and we added that to the gumbo. It, it did not produce any flavor. It was very rubbery, very difficult to eat. Um, wasn't my favorite part of the gumbo, but that's the, uh, for, for a traditional West African gumbo, cow skin. I wonder if it's, it's to do with adding again a kind of a thickening agent in some way because there'd be some gelatin in it, wouldn't it, it there that would perhaps add it, add it to the dish yeah it could be um it, it could be i did not find uh that out i don't i don't recall that it was um entered into the stew at the beginning mm-hmm. of the process but nevertheless it was such a um impenetrable uh material that it didn't i don't re- recall it ever even soaking up um any of the uh, of the spices that were in the gumbo itself, so maybe it did release something into the uh, the stew too. Uh, as a thing, talk about major, the spices. What spices were they putting into the dish? So yeah, I mean, lots of uh, lots of different stuff. I remember the onion, lots of different herbs, um, garlic. Uh, we even ground up, um, which I don't know if it counts as a spice, but we ground up. Um, uh, uh, dried fish, um, and we mi- she mixed that with uh, um, some like papri- pap- paprika spice. Um, so a lot of different stuff went in there. I have um, a really great video of Augustine um, uh, grinding this down with a huge rock, and uh, I mean for like forty minutes, this woman <laughs> was grinding uh, all of this stuff down, and wow. uh, and then just um, um, taking it, you know, uh, taking it away with her. Uh, with her knife and just adding it to the gumbo um, as she went on. It was uh, um, really great uh, for the uh, photographs that I got of that. Jody, I'd love to hear more about the market itself and uh, what it looked like, you know, what it sounded like, what it smelled like. Uh, what does something like this feel, you know, how, how is it different from places here? What was it like? What's to it check like to make out? groceries in West Africa? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> we did make groceries there for sure. Um, yeah. So funny enough, I mean, for this, this whole thing was like a wild and unexpected part of uh, uh, the initial coverage that I set out to do. So in Togo, um, a few days prior of me uh, uh, going to the Kotano market in Benin, um, I was curious about the local economy and how local um, just shopkeepers 
what their life was like. So I visited a tailor that was just outside of my hotel and they made, um, they sewed and created these beautiful um, West African garments. And I don't know if you've ever seen them, but they're, um, there's all these different patterns that you can choose from, just thousands of different patterns. And um, men and women wear these just very um, exuberant and colorful and beautiful clothing. Um, and, uh, I, I, I was like, you know what, I'm going to see, uh, what, what this is like. I'd really like to know. Um, uh, so I got this great interview with the shopkeepers to make a long story short, and, uh, they tailored me some clothes. Um, and so I, I was able to choose and, and create my own outfit. It was really, it was really awesome. Uh, when I made it to Benin and John Paul offered me to get all the ingredients, uh, he said, Hey, one, you should film this. You need to film uh, us going around making groceries and wear your Togolese clothes. And I was a little bit taken aback because I was like, I didn't want that to look uh, culturally insensitive, you know, um, but he's like, no, it's the absolute opposite. Please wear it. Um, everybody will love it. So I took his word and Ben and I found ourselves going through this wild bustling market, um, which had everything. It's the largest open air market in West Africa. And uh, we were in these uh, traditional West African clothes and everybody stopped us to, uh, to, uh, sing praise and say like, Oh my gosh, I've never seen uh, white men wear this before. This is hilarious. Uh, we <laughs> took pictures probably, I mean, a thousand different, um, photo books across West Africa now, uh, because they had, they had to have photographic evidence for their friends. It's like, you'll never guess what we saw today. So if your goal was to blend in, it didn't really work. Is that right? So we, that's what we kind of, we told that to John Paul. We we're like, how do we, how do we blend in more? He's like, yeah, okay, we're going to, um, we'll, we'll make some clothes, we'll get some, wear those clothes to the market. Yeah. Sounds like there's only so much that could be done there though. It was fantastic. But so, yeah, we made our way through this, um, through this huge market and they have, um, you know, just like any market, there's a, you know, a, um, a food section, there's, um, a garment section, there's uh, just, you know, um, sort of different departments, so to speak. And, uh, um, when, once we found our way through the, um, to the food section, we, I was able to get some great footage again, that will be on the exit strategy TV, YouTube channel, uh, soon. Um, but yeah, everything was there. It was loud. It was super hot. Um, uh, and yeah, you could smell everything, especially in the food section. Um, all, all this fresh seafood, all this salted fish. Um, live crab that they uh, that they clean and bag for you right then and there. So um, yeah, it was fantastic. Wow. And you, you'll see from the video, um, I think I did it justice because I had a, a really good mic on my uh, GoPro 10 and I just kind of um, strapped it to myself and then, you know, used a selfie stick to sort of um, introduce what I was looking at. So you really get, you'll in that video, um, I think viewers would get a really good sense of what it sounded like. Um, for sure. And, and you'll see just from the footage itself, um, just how busy and bustling I, I had, to, I was had to yell at my GoPro, which was only like a foot away from my face. Yeah. Your photos, the, the photos that you sent us, which will be with the article, um, are fantastic. Uh, Thank they you. really capture the color and the variety. Um, now was it, so was it in a city setting? Were you in a, like a big square or a big open, open area in the city? Was it, it's on, it's on the coast. So both of the um, main uh, cities of Togo and Benin are along, sit on the Atlantic Ocean in the, I believe that's the Gulf of Guinea. Um, I believe that's correct. I hope I, hope I got that correct. Uh, um, and this particular market spanned 
it's it's very large. I mean, um, just acres upon acres of uh, of like tents and makeshift tables and people who are just um, covering themselves from the heat. Uh, you can. It's kind of like um, if you go to the French market in uh, in the French Quarter here in New Orleans. Um, imagine that a hundred times larger. Wow! So, like the facility there, it stays stays the same. Like the infrastructure there stays, but the people, um, you know, come and go and, and pick up their things at the end of the day. Um, so, so, yeah. so the so the um, your grocery list, uh, it which had uh, the ingredients. How long would you say it took you to round up the the what you needed to be able to build this gumbo? We were probably in that market getting the food. Uh, probably about two hours. It would have taken less time, but um, part of the uh, um, part of the struggle is getting through everybody, and that just takes up so much. Um, then you have to stand in line, not even really in line. You have to kind of force yourself through um, other uh, and usually women who are who are making groceries, um, but they're haggling with the uh, with the shopkeepers, uh, with the with the uh, with the fishermen. Um, so you had to you had to you had to kind of barge your way in there to get what you wanted as well. So all that stuff takes time. I, I'm sure we could have gotten out of there um, quicker, but um, uh, but yeah, it was a, probably about two two hours, something like that. And then once we got back to the house to prepare the gumbo itself, that um, was an entire ordeal. Everything was outside. That probably took four hours, uh, wow. just because you're you're treating every single thing that goes in it um goes in the gumbo you're 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 doing that individually and it was just uh, augustine and myself um mm. preparing uh, all the ingredients uh it was uh sunny when we began and by sundown the gumbo was ready so it was like um it was a uh it couldn't have been a better better timing um because once it got dark outside you just can't see anything there's no electricity around uh, and then you just, you know, once, once everything's done, you bring that in the house, everybody gets off of the, um, off their video games. There are some young, young, young boys there playing video games and, uh, um, and then everyone's a little bit, um, uh, a little, a little drunk on rum. Uh, and then, uh, <laughs> and then you, uh, then you sit down and, um, dig into the, uh, gumbo itself. Wow. That doesn't sound super different from a Saturday afternoon in Louisiana exactly. summertime either. You know? Exactly. Uh, some things are universal. Yeah. Okay, so I did want to ask, and this was another thing that, that you referenced in the article, was that there was a lot of negotiation involved in um, in the purchase process, which may be another thing that we're not typically having to, you know, it's not usually part of a, a shopping trip to Albertsons, is it? So, uh, as like, how did that, was that like for a, for a Louisianan, for a, for an American, did that was that something that took a bit of getting used to, or is it uh, is it? Yeah, I'm reminded of the life of Brian Monty Python sketch, but but this bloke won't aggle, you know the <laughs> right. um, that 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 sort of prospect. It's it's that's that's so different from our way of doing things. How did that process go? Um, it was my intention to let them, uh, by them I mean John Paul or, or Augustine, handle the pricing. I didn't want to get involved. Also, my French is not that great, uh, but they were also speaking in their local language as well. Um, there was one time, and this is also on film, and I will be on the YouTube channel where they said, hey, you need to do this. You should try to haggle. And I believe it was with the cow skin, the woman who was selling the cow skin. Um, and John Paul basically took me by the hand and he was uh, 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 and said, okay, ask her how much uh, for, for this amount. And then when she tells you she's inevitably going to give you a really high price, the correct response is, Poo. 
<laughs> and, uh, uh, and this is like this sort of like, I think uh, people probably might recognize it. It's this sort of like boastful Nigerian response. Ooh, um, right. this African sort of boastful response. But apparently this is uh, what everybody does in that market. And I, I heard it after he, he, ma he made me aware um, that that is basically to show your disagreement with the high prices. So uh, there is a moment where I'm on film um, looking at the uh, cow skin lady and going, ooh. Uh, and how did she was, respond uh, to that? She was like, oh, she, not you too. Not normally in kind. So now she dropped the price. That's what happened. There you so, go. You, wow. you, nice. you, you, uh, That's the password. That must have felt like yeah. a triumph. It was uh, not, well, I mean, uh, for cow skin. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, yeah, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, great experience all, all around. And, um, I think, I think haggling for, for prices is just, uh, the name of the game and, and, um, many of these, uh, informal markets across, um, the developing world. Yeah. Sure. Sure. So Jody, uh, what did, you know, you grew up in Baton Rouge. What before, you know, did you love gumbo before? What was your, did your mom make gumbo? What was your personal like relationship with our gumbo before going and trying this this dish yeah thanks um yeah so i come from a cajun family on my mom's side of gaspards and uh my grandmother ordeen gaspar the most cajun name probably ever yeah uh <laughs> but, um, but yeah uh, i grew up um watching her make uh um gumbo uh and i certainly you know growing up and and and, and eating it um with my family um, it was, uh, that's what I thought gumbo was and not cause that was the end all be all of gumbo. Um, it never dawned on me until much later in life, uh, that this was a syncretic dish that had many influences in it and that it existed elsewhere in the world. Um, and I probably didn't recognize that because of, you know, the American exceptionalism that's indoctrinated into, into our, our people. Um, so it's, uh, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was. Uh, a great experience for me to be able to get to uh, West Africa to cover lots of other things other than the cuisine, but then, you know, kind of stumbling upon this dish that um, had its connections to, uh, I think, what probably Cajun people consider um, one of their staple culinary treats. And so uh, are you a cook yourself, Jody? Are you, uh, do you, I'm do you okay. enjoy that? I I'm all right. Yeah. I mean, I've done it. Um, I've, I've made my own gumbos, uh, before, uh, but I know, you know, I, I just, I know people that can do it much better. So I prefer <laughs> to, uh, uh, show up with the ingredients or show up with the beer and, uh, I'll happily, uh, I'll happily eat theirs. Well, I, so <laughs> I, did, I do have to ask, having had this experience, were you to sit down to make another gumbo? Was there anything you, that you choose to do differently now as a result? Um, you mean like if I made a Louisiana gumbo today? Yeah. I would love to find that hard cheese that doesn't oh, melt cheese. and All throw right. it in there. Um, uh, and I don't think cow skin would ever make it into mine. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, but um, uh, nevertheless, uh, yeah, I, if, you know, if I, I think we should incorporate the cheese into our gumbos here. I think it's uh, I think it would be great. I well, there's they, that whole if, uh, Lafayette. I guess it's a Lafayette Acadiana tradition of uh, of potato salad in gumbo. Right. right? Oh, yeah. Instead of right, absolutely. Right instead of rice and i mean that struck me as bizarre until the first time i was handed a bowl of it and it's unbelievably good and uh, yeah you know that it just makes you realize that there's any number of other ways to do it that 
There's also another thing that the West Africans do that some uh, uh, folks I've seen uh, put in their gumbos here, and that's a boiled egg. Oh, yeah. Um, you'll yeah. sometimes yeah. see a Especially boiled egg. Especially with a seafood gumbo. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So um, I noticed that a lot. Also, eggs and stew uh, huge in Ethiopia. In almost every stew that's created, um, a boiled egg is going in there in the uh, Dorawat sauce. Okay. Ooh. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I'm never mad at a boiled egg. No, never. No. This is really putting things in perspective, though, after that New York Times article came out about the vegetarian gumbo. I don't know if y'all saw that. And people <laughs> were outraged. I mean, people were so outraged that Louisiana's governor, and regardless of your political affiliations, you can think this is funny. John Bell Edwards commented saying, are y'all all right to the New York Times? <laughs> um, so this is a great kind of perspective for us to have. That, that, it's a know. controversial topic. <laughs> Gumbo. Right. I, I, I love that he said that. You know, that's what we're, that's what we paid the man to do, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Stick yeah. up for us. At you the know? end of the day, he has to fla- carry the flag high. Yep. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. But it's a good reminder. There's a huge debate also. Uh, uh, I think it started a couple of years ago um, on, on the um, Louisiana subreddit uh, about whether or not tomatoes should go into oh, yeah. a... Um, a gumbo and people were uh, fiercely on either side. Yes. Um, uh, more coming uh, against it, I think. But um, yeah, they certainly had that debate, which was uh, an interesting read. You know? Oh, it can get heated down here. Absolutely. So <laughs> n- nice to be reminded that we don't have the monopoly that, hey, maybe cheese will be good in there. Maybe so. I'm a believer. <laughs> All right, Jody. Well, thank you so much again for coming on with us today, not only for being on the podcast, but for for sharing this incredible trip that you went on with us and for pitching the story to Country Roads. We're really honored to have the opportunity to to learn a little bit more about where gumbo comes from and the ways that it's still being eaten across the world today in people's homes. So thank you so much for that. Yes, thank you, Jody. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. Um, please subscribe to Country Roads Magazine um, and, and read that story and uh, all the other great stuff that you guys produce. You are one of a kind um, in that you're covering all sorts of cool and niche uh, uh, topics around the Gulf South. So thank you for having me. I really do appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you for oh. being here. It's our pleasure and our privilege, Jody. Cheers. And those interested in learning more about Jody's other adventures and the other things he learned on his travels, go give Exit Strategy a follow. You can find it in the show notes, too. Yep, and you can find the story that he wrote for Country Roads in our July 2023 issue online at countryroadsmag.com. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, and if you're still with us at this point, we assume that you do. Please subscribe to Detours. Give us a rating and maybe even send it to a friend. And if you're not already reading Country Roads magazine, you probably should be. To read online, find a copy, or subscribe to have the monthly issues delivered to your door, visit countryroadsmag.com. Detours is written, reported, and produced by us, the editorial team at Country Roads magazine. James Fox Smith, Jordan Lahe Fontenot, and Alexandra Kennan. Our theme music was written and recorded by Bill Daniel and Sam Shaheen of Naughty Professor and produced by Bill Daniel at Wildchild Studios in New Orleans. The audio editing for this season was done by me, Jordan Lahe Fontenot, and Alexandra Kinnan. The Detour's logo and other graphics were designed by Country Roads Magazine's creative director, Courtney Zimmerman. So until our next Detour, don't be a stranger. You can always reach us at detours at countryroadsmag.com. And thanks for listening.